This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hello and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Nor as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where me and my brother John answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. How you doing, John? I'm doing well. I'm just back from uh, Northern Jordan, where I spent uh, the last few days visiting uh, refugee camps uh, and Syrian refugees who are living in uh, cities in Jordan. Most of the uh, over 600,000 Refugees from the Syrian war living in Jordan uh, are living not in camps, uh, but in cities. Uh, It was a fascinating trip, very uh, emotionally exhausting, um, at at times very, very difficult, but also um, I feel really, really lucky to have have been able to go and and to have been able to hear some of the uh, stories of of refugees, their families, and... um, and also stories from uh, people living in, in Jordan about, uh, you know, how the refugee crisis has uh, reshaped their country since 10% of all people living in Jordan right now are Syrian refugees. Uh, more than a quarter of people living in Lebanon right now are Syrian refugees. Uh, the scope of the problem is is truly overwhelming. Um, and I think uh, it was really important to me to be able to go there to get uh, a human sense of it, you know, to be able to see it not uh, in terms of hundreds of thousands and millions and big statistics, but instead in terms of uh, actual people. That is fantastic. And I'm really impressed that you did it. You sound a little bit ill. Are uh, Am I making that up? No, no, you're not. I am ill. Um, <laughs> I, I drank a lot of uh, tap water and chai and coffee in uh, in the camps. Um, you know, when, when families, uh, offer you, uh, food and, and water and tea, uh, it's important to say yes, uh, especially because, you know, these are people who in many cases are, 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 only have about 70 cents 
uh, per day uh, for food and other necessities. And so, um, you know, their sharing that with you is really important. But of course, the water is not uh, not always super clean. Mm-hmm. I also ate uh, some delicious falafel sandwiches uh, with pita bread uh, at the uh, uh, Zatri refugee camp. And I uh, might have gotten sick from that, but I also had an amazing pizza uh, at, <laughs> at, at Zatri, so I could have gotten sick from that. And I had a falafel sandwich at the Azraq uh, refugee camp, so I could have gotten sick from that. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how it happened, Hank, but the point is it happened. All right, well, I'm sorry, uh, but I do thank you for doing that. Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to hearing more of the stories coming out of that, which you are posting on your Tumblr, and uh, and also I, I hope we'll see in a video next week. Yeah, Rosiana uh, gave me my Tumblr password back after almost a year, so that I could uh, so that I could uh, sort of share some of the stories from the people <laughs> we met. Uh, I think, however, that she's going to have to go ahead and uh, and take my password back pretty shortly after I'm done posting this uh, this series of posts. But yeah, you can check out my Tumblr, fishingboatproceeds.tumblr.com, uh, to meet some of the people I met. But yeah, I think I'm also going to be making videos about it for the next few weeks. Um, I have to say, Hank, before we start the uh, proper podcast uh, and I ask you how you're doing, uh, I made a mistake in our previous video by saying that Franklin Delano Roosevelt packed the court with extra Supreme Court justices. Instead, he just threatened to pack oh. the court with extra Supreme Court justices. Okay. Um Another place where my knowledge of American history, uh, pretty sketchy. So I apologize. Now, Hank, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I'm a little overwhelmed after uh, my vacation, just uh, catching up on everything. We just had our our SciShow Patreon live stream where we increased uh, SciShow's Patreon budget by more than 20%. Thank you very much to all the people who helped us out with that. Um, that's great. I, that's a huge part of, um, of how we're able to uh, kind of keep things running around here is the uh, support that people show us uh, on Patreon to SciShow and Crash Course. So that's awesome. That's very exciting. Um, and uh, I... I yeah, I've been working long, long days. I uh, I shot ten sci shows this week. Wow, uh, which is which is a lot. And I uh, I have a, a quite a, an intense day today. That I but after that, after you know we hit five o'clock, I will be it will be the weekend. We're recording this on Friday, and I will be able to uh, not. For, for a couple of days I got some stuff that I'll have to do this this weekend but um, I, I don't have anything on the schedule and it's very very exciting well I'm very happy for you I hope you have a relaxing weekend um, Hank would you like a short poem for the day sure alright I picked a short poem today uh, from a Syrian poet uh, Nazar Kabani uh, this is called Light is More Important Than the Lantern it's translated by B. Franege and C. Brown I don't know who those people are But uh, Light is More Important Than the Lantern by Nazar Kabani. Light is more important than the lantern, the poem more important than the notebook, and the kiss more important than the lips. My letters to you are greater and more important than both of us. They are the only documents where people will discover your beauty and my madness. Light is More Important Than the Lantern by Nazar Kabani. That was lovely. Hey, can I tell you one uh, story about my trip uh, 
to Northern Jordan? Please do. One of the things that really struck me was that uh, was the separation of families. You know, um, I've I've been to very poor parts of the world before, and and but I've I've never been to a place where there was so much dislocation and separation. And I don't think I ever really understood, and I, I certainly still don't understand, but I'd never really glimpsed before the extent of that trauma. And one of the things that uh, I saw over and over and over again is that when people would talk about their relatives who'd been uh, killed in the war or who were in Germany or who were in Turkey or who were still in Syria, um, but but for whatever reason, they, they were separated. Many In many cases, you know, husbands and wives who'd been separated for years, brothers and sisters who hadn't seen each other in five years, stories like that. Um, I would ask if they had pictures of their, uh, of their family members. Um, and I would show them pictures of, of Henry and Alice and, and Sarah. And, um, and then they would, they, they, they almost always did have pictures, but they almost never had them printed out or backed up in any way. They just had them on, on their phones. Sometimes in in many cases, they're old phones because the pictures were so old, were years old. And in in the Mm. interim, they've, you know, uh, gotten, gotten new you know, better phones. And so uh, I would see again and again, these pictures of uh, family members, grainy pictures on phones that were the only, uh, the only kind of surviving copy, the only like physical connection between, um, uh, aside from memory. And it was really interesting and and moving to me uh, that we've moved to a place where digital memories are sometimes the only memories. Mm Mm-hmm. That is that, and and that you have these old devices that are kind of, you know, unsafe places to keep these things. Yeah. Uh, because you never know what's going to happen to one of those, um, and you're just sort of holding holding them and keeping them charged so that you can continue to have access to your photos. Right. Yeah. That's the only thing that the, that uh, most of the people I talk to use them for is is to look at look at pictures, to share pictures with their young kids. I think because a lot of times, you know. Uh, little kids forget the the faces of their of their parents or of their uh, older older brothers who may be in Europe or or might have died in the war. It was a very uh, it was a very sobering experience uh, for sure. And and uh, you know I, I hope that I can tell some of the stories uh, uh, effectively um, because I think it's so important to counter the narratives about um, about refugees that uh, that that we see this sort of xenophobic narratives mm-hmm. that we hear, uh, especially in the West. Indeed. Uh, I've got a first question that uh, is in reference to that from Parker. Great. Uh, who is working in Lesbos, Greece with refugees from Syria and Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and so many other places. Uh, and when I call home or post on my blog or Facebook, I get a lot of mixed reactions, many of them hostile. This is probably due to the culture that I call home, the South the American South, I assume. There are so many people who have hostility towards these hurting people, and I want to help them understand that these are not ISIS members. They're families who's lo- who have lost so much and are searching for a better life. Any dubious advice on how to help others emphasize, empathize would be appreciated. Well, I do think we have a huge empathy gap when it comes to uh, the refugee experience, uh, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan, wherever it is. Um, 
because it's difficult for us to imagine. And also, you know, I asked a lot of uh, a lot of refugees about this while I was um, while I was in Jordan. You know, I said, what would you say to Americans who are concerned about uh, ISIS or concerned about, uh, you know, that that you might be radical um, or that, that you might have something against the United States. The, the thing that struck me the most was that people were not angry at the United States, uh, at least the people I spoke to. They were very grateful uh, because while UNHCR, the UN's refugee agency, is critically underfunded, uh, the U.S. has stepped up more than many countries, and, uh, and refugees are keenly aware of that. So, um, so I found that really interesting. Um, but what what I heard uh, again and again um, was people uh, people saying, you know, you're you're right. There are <laughs> like there are in Syria and Iraq members of ISIS who wish destruction upon me, which is why I'm not in Syria anymore, which is why I had to leave, you know. And especially, I heard this especially from young men because I I told. Every time I had a chance to talk to, you know, an adult, like a, say, 20 to 35 year old adult man, I said, you know, one of the things that we hear a lot in the United States is that uh, is is that this is no longer true, but it used to be true that most of the refugees coming to Europe uh, were were adult men. And um, how do you feel about people saying you should be in Iraq, in Iraq or in Syria fighting ISIS or fighting for your country's freedom. And their response was, that's not how it worked. You know, how it worked was uh, you were conscripted into an army that does not reflect your belief or your value system under punishment of of death or or murder of your family members. Um, It's not a question of, you know, like fighting for freedom. It's a question of not being conscripted into an army that's trying to, you know, that, that, that if you don't go, they'll, they'll kill people in your family. And, and uh, the truth is that while there have been crimes committed by asylum seekers in Europe, and while there have been crimes committed by refugees uh, in the U.S. in the past, not Syrian refugees so far as I know, but it has it has happened. They're crimes, and they should be prosecuted as crimes, and they should not be seen as reflective of some entire community. The same way that I, I wouldn't want the actions of the young white man who uh, murdered people in an African-American church uh, while they were at worship to be reflective of me as a white person. So we have to prosecute crimes as crimes and not as reflective of some uh, you know, larger failure of an entire people. Yeah. Uh, as we get deeper into this election season, it's going to be harder and harder not to talk about politics and to think about these things in, in the in the lens of of the uh, the election here in America, because it's very difficult for me not to immediately think of, you know, the implications and, and sort of like how this works psychologically, which is that we are prone to being afraid of things that we don't understand, of people we don't understand, of people who are different from us, uh, and, and even in small ways, uh, even if those differences are quite small. And uh, and that in order, the best way to get support as a candidate is to make people afraid. That's what gets people, more than any other emotion, that's what gets people to take actions. And even if that, if that action is to get up and go vote, then fear is... Uh, is a is a 
great motivator. And I'm seeing more and more of this. It's not really about uh, any legitimate, credible, scary thing. Um, there are scary things that happen, but of course there are lots of lots of different ways that people get hurt and injured and have their lives become worse. Um, and you know, it, it, we're not particularly good at at judging those threats as humans. Um, that we are really good at uh, being afraid of other people who we see as not like us or who we see might be trying to take advantage of us or or worse. And um, that fear mongering is so much more powerful than hope mongering than uh, than thinking about like feel, feeling the connection between all humans and knowing that uh, that these people more than anyone in the world need help right now and um, and it's very unpleasant to watch how the conversation is progressing in America. So as far as Parker's actual question goes, I, I don't even know. Um, I just hope that people can find fear to be not the emotion to grasp onto and to um, and to make such an important part of how they see the world. Yeah, Parker, the only thing that I would say in addition to that is uh, to, to keep telling uh, these people's stories because mm-hmm. they don't have access to the same platforms that you do in most cases. Uh, in most cases, they can't write in English. In most cases, they don't have, uh, you know, the kind of internet access that allows them to tell their own stories. Um, so, you know, quote their stories, tell their stories, share their stories. And uh, many people will react negatively to that. Many people uh, will doubt your sincerity or their sincerity, uh, but at least it gives them uh, something of a voice in this conversation. Because I think one of the biggest problems right now is that we hear a lot about what Donald Trump thinks of Islam, but not a lot about what Muslims think of Islam. And so uh, I think just uh, share those stories and uh, keep up your, your good work. Yeah. We're grateful for it. Yeah, thank you, Parker, and thank you, John, for for uh, helping share those stories and uh, helping us, you know, helping us bridge that empathy gap. Uh, we uh, have another question. This one is from Miss D, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, it's a little, it's a problem, but it is a smaller problem. I'm a middle middle school teacher, and I love my students." My biggest complaint I have about them is they leave a trail of half-empty water bottles behind them wherever they go. There are currently three half-empty water bottles in my room right now, uh, and I try to encourage reusable water bottles with their name written in Sharpie, but they are just 11 years old, and they have whatever their parents send them to school with. I feel bad not just about the wasted plastic, but the water. I drink a lot of tea, and I'm really tempted to just put all that extra water I find into my electric tea kettle and boil the heck out of it, uh, and then make... Make, make will that get rid of all the child germs or should I just uh, find a plant to water them with <laughs> I mean as someone who currently has a probable case of dysentery I am inclined <laughs> to get the plant misty um yeah I, I mean I first of all if you do if you boil the water it, and make tea out of it uh, it will indeed uh, kill those weird child germs but you uh to to kill all of them i'm not really concerned about you killing all of them because i think probably none of your children uh in class have cholera um but i uh you yeah you might still get sick 
uh, unless you boil it for like 10 minutes or something, which is just energy efficient and you don't want that. Yeah, as long as you boil it for five to 10 minutes, you should actually be fine. And that's coming from someone uh, who's generally, uh, you know, a little bit cautious on these topics. But I, w- I think it's fine in theory. There's just something about it in practice <laughs> that I find yeah, gross. Yeah, and also I, I think if you end up boiling that water for longer than usual, the energy that you're using to do that is probably going to offset any any energy you save by saving the water. Um but I, uh, the other thing I'd say is get, that is so annoying. And it is annoying for me because of the plastic, not because of the water. Uh, I, you know, obviously the water waste is something, but it is not substantial. Uh, and if they drank it, they probably wouldn't get that much out of it anyway. They'd probably just pee a little more next time they went to the bathroom. But I, I mean, I know a guy uh, who will go nameless who leaves half-empty bottles of Diet Dr. Pepper all over the world. <laughs> and I find it a little bit frustrating. It is to, uh, uh, it is to, per- to be like to be like why is that why did you just open why did you just open a new bottle of Diet Dr. Pepper when there is clearly one right there that is half empty? I mean they just taste so great when they're fresh. <laughs> There's just nothing like that first sip of a Diet Dr. Pepper. Oh my god. Speaking of which, Hank. What? What do I have to do? to get sponsored by Diet Dr. Pepper. I am the greatest spokesperson they have ever had. I don't know, John. Uh, maybe someone listening is in the marketing department at Dr. Pepper Enterprises, uh, which is, <sighs> I, I believe. Uh, by the way, I'm enjoying a delicious Diet Dr. Pepper right now. I'm sure you are. I, I believe that Dr. Pepper is a separate company from Pepsi and Coke. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, they are their own That's entity. Crazy. There's nothing like Diet Dr. Pepper. It's unique in the world. Yeah. That's very interesting. You know, diet, you know, Dr. Pepper has its own bottled water. There's like Aquafina and Dasani are the Pepsi and Coke ones. And then, but then there's a separate mm-hmm. Dr. Pepper bottled water, which I ran into in a in a uh, airport when I was thirsty, uh, and and I felt bad about it. Don't worry, uh, but I did not have my reusable water <laughs> bottle with me. Uh, but yeah, I, I it I I think that you should I think that you should take an entire uh, lesson out of the of your week and just uh you know pack pack the other four days full of of the stuff you would normally teach on that wednesday and then on wednesday you say we're gonna have a special class and today we're gonna talk about reuse and recycling and uh and how how uh the future generations will see us as the most profligate wasteful bunch of turds that ever existed on the surface of the planet and how how did we squander our wonderful wonderful level of excess that we had in america in the 21st century oh by tossing water bottles when they were half empty (laughs) that's that's your lecture for you rub it all in their 11 year old faces make them feel that guilt Oh, man. Our comedy podcast finally got briefly funny. Uh, Okay, Hank, we've got another question. This one comes from Nick, who writes, Dear Hank John, if understand what me say when speak English bad, why need speak English good? (laughs) You know, this is a great question. And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it while while I was eating breakfast and reading these questions. And, you know, honestly, I think a lot of the reason is how much information we pack, not into just what we say, but but how we say it. And I don't mean like how you say it, like get up there and be a good public speaker. I mean, the way that we talk says a lot like it is a way that we judge each other. And so I'm not saying that this is a good thing. I'm saying that it it is a thing that when we speak correctly, people think 
more highly of us. I would agree, except that I would say that there is no such actual thing as speaking correctly. As correctly, uh, yes. That, uh, yes, we speak in a certain way that sounds like the way that, it, yes. Right. That sentence, by the way, was undiagrammable and uh, therefore technically incorrect. <laughs> so my argument about this, Nick, is that uh, I understood what you meant when uh, in your question, but it wasn't as clear to me as quickly as it would have been if you'd said, um, if people understand me when I sp- when I speak English poorly, why should I speak English well? And so for me, um, grammar and, and language is not only about uh, like overall comprehension, it's also about the speed at which that comprehension can happen, because that means that we can have sort of a more transparent conversation. Like language ultimately uh, should be completely transparent, in, in my opinion, at least. It should just, it should just be sort of the, the sound waves through which ideas travel between people. And every time mm. we make that less clear uh, or we make it in some way opaque, uh, we're doing damage to the quality of conversation that you and I can have together. And so that's my argument for, if not um, uh, grammatically correct English or the king's English or whatever, at least a shared agreed upon English. That in the end is all I think that really matters is, is that we agree upon like what language uh, what kind of language choices we're going to make so that when we have conversations or when we're reading, uh, we can do so with clarity. Well, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this question. But but what about like the, the way that people create new languages? Like if we say that like we want maximum clarity, then what we're saying is we want one universal structured English that is all the same and everybody speaks the same English. But what does that take away from new versions of English or accented Englishes or, uh, you know, like new ways of well, speaking? Well, no, I don't think we want one version of, of English that everyone speaks because I don't think that uh, we necessarily want everyone to understand us when we're speaking, right? So, like, I think Mm. there are, uh, that's one of the reasons that we change language is so that uh, people won't understand, people who we don't want to understand us won't understand us. Another reason we change language, and I think this is a very cool and interesting reason, is because uh, the language that exists does not do a good job of describing our experience. Mm -hmm. And so we can we we can create words or phrases um, that will do a better job um, and that will all sort of immediately understand or, you know, a certain group anyway will immediately understand right. the meaning of because it just sounds right or it feels right or whatever. So I'm not against uh, in any way. I'm not uh, opposed to uh, language changing. I think it should change, but um, but I think it should be you know, as transparent as possible when you're having a conversation. All right. We got another question is from Jordica who asks, Dear Hank and John, Hank believes that you can, I, that you can learn a lot about someone by their favorite bridge. I think the way a person's house smells says a lot. Fess up. What's the smelling in your dwelling? Hank only asked that question because he liked the rhyme at the end. Well, uh, yes, partially. I think that I think that there is a lovely thing about a well-constructed question that has a nice little rhyme. But also, I wanted to talk about death for this question because the smelling in my dwelling <laughs> is very depressingly non-smelly. Because my, because it's not full of dog farts anymore, John. I walk in every day right. and I'm like I'm like. Not only is there not a happy, waggy thing there to say, hey, there's also not that smell. 
Never that smell. Yeah, it is funny. I mean, uh, the people and animals in your house sort of make up the the way you uh, smell it. And when it doesn't smell like that, it doesn't feel like your house. I'm sorry about that, Hank. I don't know what the smelling in my house is precisely because it's the smell in my house, but I know if it changes. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that if I walked in and, and Willie suddenly weren't there, I would... Uh, I would sense his absence in an olfactory manner. It's it's weird. Not something that you think about until it's not there. Uh, but yeah, my house my house does not smell a great deal. It's fairly fairly new. Uh, but I go back to Florida and I'm like, everything smells like mold. And then my face starts to explode. Uh, because apparently I didn't realize how allergic I was to mold until I left Florida and was like, oh, I can breathe. <laughs> it was wonderful. Oh, man. Florida. It's so Florida-y. It's so Florida-y. This episode of Dear Hang is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. All right, Hank, we have another question. This one comes from Mary, who writes, Dear John and Hank, some people have, for whatever reason, started to believe that the Earth is actually flat after years of evidence suggesting it is round. Not just years, really millennia, really longer than millennia, really billions of years of evidence (laughs) suggesting that it is round. Obviously, the Earth is round. I, I strongly agree, Mary. I'm glad that we could start from that point. But it got me wondering, what would life be like if the Earth were flat? How would it be different? And just so you can mention death in the podcast, would we all die? Thanks for the opportunity to mention death, Mary. Of course we would all die. Yes. Yes, we would all die if the earth were flat. We would all die in the process of it becoming round. What? Well, yeah, because if you had a flat earth, it would like if you had the, the mass of the earth stretched out at a flat disk or whatever shape you want, it would coalesce via gravity. It would break apart and form a sphere. 
Oh, yeah. So we would all die. Everything would die, and then the Earth would have to reform, and then you'd have to go through all 4.5 billion years of the Earth's history before you had anything even approaching the inner, the, the level of interestingness of, of this podcast. <laughs> so, so that's what would happen. Are, Hank, are you at all fascinated by uh, conspiracy theories along the lines of the Earth is actually flat? Or do you just find them ludicrous? Or like, or like, there's a, the, or there's the Cyberman Earth on the other side of the sun that's just matching our orbit, and we never can see it. Oh no, that's real. Uh, I believe that planet <laughs> has a name, but I can't remember its name. It was, I think, it was Meloria. Meloria, of course, yeah. Meloria is real. We just can't see it. Um, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, there, there is one that I am kind of fascinated by. It's called the Shadow Microbiome. No. The shadow, the shadow biosphere, the shadow biosphere. That's what it's called. Okay. And it's the idea that there is a whole other biosphere on Earth that we do not know about and can't detect because it doesn't use the same chemistry as the life that we know about. So it's this idea basically that like if we if we go to Mars, life could be so different that we wouldn't even know it existed because none of the systems we use for testing for life would work on it. Uh, and so, so if that's possible, then why isn't there a possibility that here on Earth, there are a bunch of microorganisms that don't have mitochondria, they don't use DNA. They don't use any of the same proteins we use. And so when we do tests to see if there are living things, we're like, well, nothing there. But maybe there is something alive there. It's just so different that we cannot tell that there's a living thing there. Now, I don't think that this is actually a thing that is real. I don't think this, the, the shadow microbiome, the shadow bio, I don't think that the shadow biosphere is real. I think that it, like, there is a tiny, tiny, tiny chance that it could be. And that is fascinating to well, me. Well, but this would just be microscopic organisms, right? This wouldn't be um, right. like yes. a whole no, civilization. I mean, if there, if there were like uh, shadow dogs, a shadow shadow biosphere that had like dogs in it, we would see them. Okay. Uh, they would reflect, they would, they would still absorb and reflect light. Right. So, uh, uh, so they, just to confirm yeah. here, what you're telling me is that it's possible that in addition to half of my body being bacteria, another half of my body uh, could be organisms that I just don't know are life. Yeah. <laughs> the good news is they really probably could not do any damage to you if they were based on completely different chemistry. They would see you as maybe a source of water, maybe a source of warmth, but uh, but it would be very difficult for them to interact with any of your any of your biological systems because of how different they would be. Can I tell you my favorite conspiracy theory? All right, go. Uh, there is a conspiracy theory on the internet, you can Google it, uh, that Stephen Hawking, the theoretical physicist, mm -hmm. uh, was replaced by a different Stephen Hawking uh, in about 1985. That's real weird. Uh, and there are lots and lots and lots of people who believe it, and uh, the amount of research that they have done into it is uh, horrifying, and... It's just a very strange corner of the internet. I'm always fascinated by the strange corners of the internet, uh, if not always encouraged by them. <laughs> but that is one of the stranger ones I have come across. Uh, this this podcast, John, is brought to you by Shadow Stephen Hawking. <laughs> Shadow Stephen Hawking, introduced to the world in 1983 or 89 or whatever you said, uh, to be a new and better Stephen Hawking. And, of course, this podcast is brought to you by delicious Diet Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> I want you to sponsor me! This podcast is also brought to you by uh, 
tea made from the leavings of 11-year-old snots. <laughs> tea made from the leavings of 11-year-old snots. Uh, good for you, good for the environment, and almost certainly not going to give you dysentery. And, of course, this podcast is brought to you by the Flat Earth. The Flat Earth, unfortunately, coalescing into a sphere, killing us all. <laughs> There's no better part of the podcast, John. That's really, that's really what it, everybody was waiting for that, and then they all leave. <laughs> no, no, that is, it's the highlight of my podcast every week, for sure. <laughs> well done, well done. Um, all right, John. We got, there are so many good questions today. There are so many good questions. We've got one here from Ash, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I have a very urgent question. I'm wondering why don't bugs die when we flick them? They are sig- we are significantly larger and stronger than the bugs and can crush them with a finger, yet somehow the impact of a flick does not kill them. Can you explain these superhero insects to me? I cannot, but I bet Hank can. I can, I can. Uh, basically, uh, uh, flick, uh, flick something really small, bug-sized, like a piece of crust, which I have on my desk, which I just flicked, and then flick your desk. Flick something hard that's not going to move. You will feel a difference between the thing that happened to your finger. (laughs) Uh, You will feel that the flicking of the flea, of the the piece of dust, did not hurt. The flicking, you don't even want to do it, do you? You're like, oh, I'm not going to flick something hard. Uh, So what's happening is, you know... uh, Force, which is the thing that's going to kill the bug, is mass times acceleration. Uh, And when you are pushing on a bug, uh, your mass, the amount of mass that you are transferring is, is gigantic. When you're flicking a bug, the only mass involved isn't the mass of you. It's the mass of the bug, which is very small. Now, if you flick a big bug, if you flick like a tarantula in the face, don't do that. Or you flick like a real like a horsefly, <laughs> you could kill you could kill the that bug because it's like flicking something from something uh, hard and big, and you're going to transfer all of that kinetic energy into the bug, uh, whereas uh, and into the mass of that bug. Uh, so you're going to get a, a large force. But if you're flicking like a gnat or something, then that force is very small because the mass of the gnat is very small, which allows them to live through very significant changes in acceleration. Well, that is just fascinating. I'm so grateful for this lesson in physics. All right. I, I, do, I do have another one that I wanted to get to, which is from Grace. Uh, Grace uh, asks, Dear Hank and John, over the last few years, I've gained a greater confidence in myself. However, my family has increasingly begun to refer to this confidence as narcissism. How do I sustain this confidence without becoming narcissistic? Is narcissism necessarily a bad thing? And if so, where is the line between confidence in one's self and narcissism? Any advice, especially dubious advice, which would, would be much appreciated? Oh, man. Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question. I think ultimately, uh, if people are telling you that you have a problem with narcissism, you should probably listen to them. I mean, I don't think that, uh, I don't think that, confidence and narcissism are mutually exclusive do you Hank no I I do think that they are different things though I, I I'll be honest with you John I but yeah I, that's what I was I've been say. thinking about this question all morning because I because there's this there's such we we need this we need to feel valued and valuable to be humans uh, but at the same time there is definitely this thing where I really don't like people who feel that in a way and like have the source of that be something that I find 
uh, unpleasant. And I think that that a lot of times narcissism is in fact when the source of your confidence is either uh, I, I think in, in the best case scenario it's something that you don't de- like people see as something you don't deserve. So if you are very powerful and wealthy and you are you feel very confident because of your wealth, then then it's like well did uh, but you were just you know you were just uh, born wealthy then that's very strange that's like saying i'm better than other people because i have this thing that other people don't have um and and maybe there's maybe there's an element of that like is your confidence in like you being better than other people or is your confidence in comparison to you and how you feel you are and you you like achieving for yourself what you feel like are the right things for a person to be and i think that that confidence is is a wonderful thing but that means that confidence and being humble are not like are like are completely like you can be both of those things at the same time whereas yeah i think that there's a way to be confident and also to be so confident that you're kind of reveling in it uh and maybe reveling in a a kind of confidence in in a thing that you maybe aren't even responsible for that uh it can be really off-putting to people i think that was a great answer hank i'm not going to try to add to it i do however want to answer one more question before we get to the news from mars a cold dead rock in space and afc wimbledon the greatest achievement in the history of humans i cannot i cannot believe it's time for that already it cannot be time for that already this question comes from rachel who asks dear john and hank why is it that whenever money is shown on tv or in the movies it is so obviously fake not just large amounts but even single dollar bills i can understand not wanting to use real money on set but it seems to me like the props department goes out of its way to make the money not look real So uh, I think that you might actually be mistaken uh, because sometimes I I have seen real money used on movie sets. In Paper Towns, uh, they use real money, um, just like a a couple dollar bills. Uh, When it's one dollar bills, I think they they tend to use real money. When it's large amounts of money, they do use fake money. And do you want to know why they use fake money, Hank? Uh, Because it's hard to get a bunch of money. Uh, That is incorrect. Okay. Okay. Oh, wait, no, that is correct. But do you want to know why the money is obviously fake? No, because you cannot get... Because uh, it is illegal to have accurate-looking fake money. That is right. And in 2000, uh, when a big-budget movie blew up a billion dollars worth of $100 fake bills and sent them flying everywhere... <laughs> People used them because they were very compelling and they passed them off as legitimate. And then the Secret Service arrested the uh, props master who had created the bill. So as you can imagine, people who work in Hollywood, not anxious to be arrested, uh, these days make the money look pretty fake. Wow, that's fascinating. I mean, you'd think maybe they just make the backs look fake, like not print anything on the backs if they're not going to. Sh- but maybe I don't know. Uh, that's that's really cool. Uh, there's a there's a possible other explanation here, which is that maybe you're watching old movies when money looked different. <laughs> that's a great point, <laughs> because it, it wasn't so long ago uh, that, that American bills looked very different. And yet we continue to print them all the exact same size, uh, which is openly discriminatory toward blind people. Uh, we can make yeah. all kinds of different changes, but for some reason we refuse to make that one. Also, we continue to make pennies, which is ludicrous. Okay, uh, we're going to do one more question, John, but we're going to do it after 
the news from uh, Mars and AFC Wimbledon. We're going to shake up the format a little bit here. So basically, what I'm trying to do is force people to listen to the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. <laughs> this last question is going to be a doozy, too, so you've got to stay. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be so good. John did a bunch of research for it. What's the news from Mars, Hank? The news from Mars is some new information about uh, the Mars's ancient history. Now, John, you know that Mars has the largest volcano in the solar system. I did know that. No, I didn't. You've got Olympus Mons, which is the biggest volcano ever. And then you have a few other very large volcanoes that are very small compared to Olympus Mons, but still freaking gigantic. Uh, And uh, around 3 billion to 3.5 billion years ago is when these volcanoes first started erupting. Now, they are still potentially still erupting even to this day. Now, the most recent eruption of Olympus Mons, very small eruption, happened like less than 100,000 years ago, which geologic time, not a long time. So it's possible that there are still eruptions to come. But back 3, 3 billion to 3.5 billion years ago, uh, when this uh, these, these volcanoes were forming, uh, an, a remarkable thing happened where they were so massive, uh, they made the they made Mars like lopsided and the entire planet shifted around its uh, its core. So like imagine like like you put your fist over your fist and you move your fist. That's what happened. Like Mars stayed in the same place, but the surface of Mars shifted around. Uh, does that make sense? Hopefully that makes sense. This means that when we're looking at the surface of Mars, we're not looking at how it was always oriented, uh, that it actually has has slipped. And so if we are thinking about like how Martian seasons were four billion years ago, they were different than they are now. Uh, now, of course, that was all very long ago, probably before any life could have formed on Mars before, you know, like before any of the of the features that we see on Mars that may have been that are relating to water uh, existed. So we're not of course, we don't know what Mars looked like three. 7 billion years ago, but it's pretty cool that we can tell this one thing about uh, the history of Mars that happened so very long ago. It is fascinating. Uh, it, you know what I find even more fascinating is that the Earth is actually flat. Yeah. Well, uh, only for a little bit. Uh, we better we better y- YOLO <laughs> while we can, John. Okay, I am excited to move on to the news from AFC Wimbledon, Hank, because uh, I was actually at... Uh, AFC Wimbledon's game against Oxford United. Uh, I got to meet manager Neil Ardley, uh, first team coach Simon Bassey. I got to meet all the players, Hank. I went into the locker room before the game and shook hands. That's pretty cool. Uh, with every single uh, every single player from the team, including and Fenwa. I told Lyle Taylor that we called him the Montserratian and Messi, and he looked briefly confused because, of course, he is not actually from Montserrat. He's from England. But because he has a grandparent from Montserrat, he plays uh, for the Montserrat national team. Um, but he, he seemed quite pleased with the nickname. I told Callum Kennedy that uh, that Meredith, the producer of the AFC Wimbledon Wimbley Womblies, is a big fan of his. And uh, he was delighted. I got It was so fun to meet all of the players. And the atmosphere, uh, it must be said, at the stadium was just amazing. The John Green stand was packed. It was sold out. There was singing. It was wonderful. Uh, Andy Barcham scored a goal for Wimbledon. 
and they lost two to one. Ah, that's too bad because Oxford's right there at the top of the table. That's right. Oxford's up there at the top of the table. But then we played league leading Northampton next, uh, who are way at the top of the table. They're 11 points clear uh, and we tied them 1-1. So we took one point. Uh, away from that game at Northampton, which is a really pretty important, uh, pretty important point, it must be said. Uh, And, you know, while it would have been ideal to win that game against Oxford and put that would have put us in a position uh, potentially where we could have, uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe ended up in those top three spots that are automatically promoted. Um, that isn't, you know, that isn't how it happened. Uh, instead we lost that game, which was a bummer. Right. Um, so and- you're probably, it's, it's, it's a, it'd be a real hard fight to get up in those top three spots now. Uh, it's looking like we're not going to get up in those top three spots at this point. So what we have instead, uh, is to get into one of the spots between four and seven so we can get into the playoffs and maybe get promoted, uh, that way. Um, it's it's going to be difficult. Right now, we are eighth with 52 points, but the team that is fifth only has 53 points, uh, so it should be possible. I should add, Hank, that uh, Wimbledon's crucial tying goal against league-leading Northampton was scored by none other than the Montserratian and Messi Lyle Taylor, who's just had a fantastic season for us. So we are currently in eighth, which means that we are missing out on the playoffs, but uh, only one point away from fifth. Unfortunately, 12 points away from the automatic promotion spot uh, that is third place. So that's looking unlikely uh, with just 13 games to go. But uh, hope is the thing with feathers, Hank. Hope is the thing with feathers. All right. Well, uh, I've got some notes here. Uh, we're gonna put. We're gonna start putting podcast notes up on uh, up on Dear Hank and uh, up on the Dear Hank and John Patreon, so you will be able to see some of the things that we talk about. And the thing that I wanted to show you this week in our podcast notes is from Kyla, who says, "Looks like somebody already beat me to it." So you know that there are feral cows in Hong Kong. However, I bet you didn't know that they enjoy pumpkin spice cliff bars. I visited Hong Kong a couple weeks ago and have attached some photos for your enjoyment. The cows are on Ngong Ping Island. I don't speak this language. Uh, and uh, the cows wander around, but are kept out of the vicinity of the monastery and the, the big Buddha that they have there. And uh, I may have accidentally led a stampede of feral cows as they followed me looking for more cliff, go- cliff bars and petting, but I don't regret it says Kyla. So we're going to post some of Kyla's pictures of feral cows in Hong Kong. And then we also have... Hank, can I confirm that uh, you can you can visit all of that stuff on the Patreon, even if you don't support us on Patreon, right? That is absolutely true, uh, which I was going to mention in reference to Tim's question, who says, Dear Hank and John, one quick question concerning the podcast. Where are we supposed to discuss the podcast? Or rather, is there a place on the internet where the podcast is discussed? And can I join? You can. There's conversations going on on the SoundCloud, uh, which is where we post uh, Dear Hank and John on for internet viewership and it is also there are conversations happening on the Patreon now you don't have to be a patron patron to 
join the conversation on Patreon, and we encourage you to do that. Uh, and I hope that there are interesting conversations going on there, which is where we have our podcast notes, and also uh, you will be able to listen to the podcast there. Yeah, so basically, if you go to patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn, uh, you have the option uh, to uh, support our uh, podcast here and help out uh, uh, Nick, who uh, edits the show, and uh, Claudia, our intern. But uh, you don't really have to. You get 99% of the benefits just by, by going to the webpage. You can see everything. The only thing that you don't have access to is our monthly uh, live stream, which frankly is of exceptionally low quality. Nonetheless, we appreciate uh, all of your uh, support on Patreon. Uh, it, uh, it really uh, helps out with the show. So thank you. But, uh, but you don't need to uh, support the podcast uh, financially uh, to see all of the stuff that we post on the Dear Hank and John Patreon. All right. And now we have our final question, which comes from Shelby. Dear Hank and John, given its varying price points throughout the world, how much in USD would it actually cost to buy the world a Coke? <laughs> I mean, this is an exceptionally difficult question to answer. So one of the reasons that this is such a, a difficult question to answer uh, is that you've got to count whether or not uh, different municipalities charge extra for you to uh, return the can, <laughs> like you get a five cent or 10 cent refund, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then you got soda taxes in some places in America. Uh, you're not going to get an exact uh, yeah. number. Could we get a... Uh, you're not going to get an exact number, yeah. um, but... What I have seen is that uh, there is a website called whomuch.com, and it says that the global average price of one can of Coca-Cola is $2.65. What? For 12 ounces, for 330 milliliters. I think that this is wrong. I also think that this is wrong. I think it is wrong, Hank. Uh, You also think that it is wrong? Yeah, because that's not how much a can of Coke costs. Yeah, I think that it is wrong because it says that in the United States, the price is $4.23, which seems high. (laughs) Yeah, that seems pretty wrong. So I think we've got a lot of like wrong answers uh, that have have messed up whomuch.com. My theory is that a can of Coke, because I base this on having traveled to four countries. So this is a very round estimate, okay? But I just bought a can of Pepsi uh, at the Azraq uh, refugee camp in northern Jordan. I've purchased a can of Coke uh, in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I've purchased Coke in the Dominican Republic, in Mexico, in the United States, in Canada. Uh, None of these places, by the way, have Diet Dr. Pepper, except for the United (laughs) States and Canada. Or else I wouldn't have purchased a Coke, believe me. And I'm going to say that the average price of a Coke on Earth is 75 cents. That is my round guess. Like, it, just buying one Coke. Obviously, if you, if you buy 12 Cokes at a time, yeah. you get a bulk discount. But I think the average price for one Coke is around 75 cents. You think that's too high, Hank? Well, I think if you're going to buy the world a Coke, you're going to get a bulk discount. Okay, let's assume that we get a bulk discount. Uh, in that case, a 12-pack is like three bucks. And twelve divided by three. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say twenty five. I'm gonna say if we are gonna try and buy seven billion cokes, we can get a pretty steep discount. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say twenty five cents, and I'm gonna say that's high. Okay, so let's say it's twenty five cents. 
There's currently, well, what is the world's current population? World's current population. Uh, Google says the world's current population is 7.125 billion. That's a very round number. Um, that's at most correct within the nearest million, but whatever, we're doing our best here. So we're going to say 7.125 billion times 0.25. You could buy the world a Coke for... My goodness, that is a lot of money. Around $1.8 billion. About $1.78 billion will buy you, well, will buy the world a can of Coke apiece. However, are we going to say that maybe we don't want to buy Cokes for the babies? And we'll leave it at that, John. Do we not, though? Don't we want to buy Cokes especially for the babies? (laughs) I don't. I think think we should should lop off everyone under the age of six. Let's just not. Let's just say leave that up to their parents. Actually, Hank, there's something that you haven't considered at all that neither of us have considered and that I'm not even sure the question considered, which is that if we're going to say how much would it actually cost to buy the world a Coke, why are we limiting the access of, of Coke only to, to one particular species. It's true, John. It's true. If you got to buy a Coke for every single ant, then you're going to run out of money real fast. Well, the nice thing about ants, though, is that they don't need like one Coke a piece, you know, like 500 million <laughs> of them can can use one Coke. Right. Share a Coke. Yeah. Yeah. Just pour, just, just pour one out. On the, on the hill, and they'll be like, that's scary. And then they'll be like, no, it's not. Do more. <laughs> and Please they'll end up more. Like, they'll end up like dying in the syrup of the Coke, but oh, what a death <laughs> it shall sounds, be. Sounds about right, John. All right. All right, Hank, what did we learn today? Oh, God, we learned that, that uh, the Coca-Cola company uh, will not sponsor us, but not because we don't, not because they don't want to, because we don't want them to, because we want Diet Dr. Pepper to sponsor us. <laughs> That's right. It's Diet Dr. Pepper or nobody. And of course, we learned that the uh, earth is round and that if it weren't, it would become round. <laughs> we learned that someone once went to jail for making a movie prop that looked too realistic. Actually, I'm not sure they went to jail. That might be like me talking about FDR packing the court. But but the Secret <laughs> Service came calling. <laughs> and of course, we learned that bugs don't die when we flick them because of F equaling MA. That's correct. Thank you, John, for uh, podcasting with me today. Thank you, all of you people, for listening to the podcast today. Uh, Our podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. Our intern is Claudia Morales. Rosiana Hulse-Rojas helps us with the questions. Thanks to everyone for listening. And as we say, oh, wait, you can email us. Write your questions. Please email them to hankandjohn at gmail.com or use the hashtag DearHankAndJohn on Twitter, where I'm John Green and Hank is Hank Green. Thanks again for listening. And as we say in our hometown, don't Don't forget forget to to be be awesome. awesome.